Over the past two weeks, we have been reviewing and looking at John Wesley's three simple rules. Devised in the mid-1700s, these rules attempt to clarify the connection between saving faith and Christian behavior. And they indicate what was expected of people as they became members of the early Methodist societies. These rules are also referred to as the general rules of the United Methodist Church. And in order to become ordained in the United Methodist Church, you are asked to profess your knowledge of these rules as well as your intentionality to keep them. They remind us that we have a set of standards that guide our life together, that we are part of a connectional ministry, and that we are accountable to one another, both across the aisle and across the globe. So important were these rules that it used to be part of our discipline to read them to the congregation once every quarter. Now, I don't know if we're going to bring that back, but I am confident you will see those banners again at some point. Gary even wanted to have them strewn across the chancel of every worship service. And I told him not to get in trouble with the trustees during his first two months here. (laughs) Now, before we look at this third and final rule, I wanted to give just a little bit more information about these rules and invite you to think of them as a complete set, that they are most effective when practiced together And to think about how there's probably more to these rules than three sermons could ever completely cover. Firstly, I will share with you that we have actually been discussing and using a simplified version of these rules. A later edition, an alternate translation even. um, That were written by a retired United Methodist bishop. But we'll talk more about that in a minute. But I thought it would be fun to hear these rules in their original form as John Wesley wrote them in the 1740s, which might demonstrate why a translation was needed. But here's what John Wesley came up with in his work titled The Nature, Design, and General Rules of the United Societies. And you'll hear some of this repeated. It is therefore expected of all who continue therein that they should continue to evidence their desire of salvation, first, by doing no harm, by avoiding evil of every kind, especially that which is most generally practiced, such as, and then John Wesley rattles off a whole list of harmful things that the people of his era should stop doing, providing 16 different examples. I will read six of them for fun. Number one, drunkenness, buying or selling spirituous liquors or drinking them unless in cases of extreme necessity. (laughs) Now, it was 1743, so I don't know what warranted extreme necessity, but I don't want to see any flasks coming out in the back of the church. (laughs) Two, slaveholding, buying or selling slaves. Again, 1743, that's a big deal. Thirdly, uncharitable or unprofitable conversation, particularly speaking evil of magistrates or of ministers. (laughs) Hello, somebody. How many people this morning are wearing any gold or costly jewelry this morning? Everybody look at their wedding bands. Here's your necklaces. The putting on of gold and costly apparel was doing harm, apparently. 
Fifthly, taking such diversions as cannot be used in the name of the Lord Jesus. Look around. Is anyone on a diversion on this three-day weekend? How many people went to the beach this summer? How many people went to church while they were at the beach this summer? Oh, good bonus points. And lastly, the singing those songs or reading those books which do not tend to the knowledge or love of God. I imagine everyone will go home to update their iTunes library and peruse their personal books as well. Now, while some of those six uh, rules may be unique to his time period, John Wesley did recognize that you could do harm to others and to yourself by what you consume, by how you treated and thought of others, by the things that you said, by how you spent your money, by how you spent your time, and lastly, by the media that you read or listened to. The second rule, do good, is expanded to and this again, it is expected of all who continue in these societies that they should continue to evidence their desire of salvation. Secondly, by doing good, by being in every kind merciful after their power, as they have opportunity, doing good of every possible sort and as far as possible to all people. And then again, another litany of explanations and examples that includes assisting people in both physical and earthly ways, as well as providing spiritual aid. Wesley even said that we are to do good, especially to them that are of the household of faith or groaning so to be. Employing them preferably to others, buying of one another, helping each other in business, and so much the more because the world will love its own and them only. Now before we get to the third rule, I want to say that all of these rules can easily be found and read in their entirety both online and a slew of other official United Methodist publications and stuff. But it was in 2007 when a retired bishop took these rules and wrote a little book to simplify them for everyone. Bishop Reuben Job spoke of his new book and said this. He said, these simple rules then and now apply to everyone. No one was left out. No one was too good, too mean, too rich, or too poor, too educated, or too illiterate. Our world is deeply divided, highly cynical about its leadership, greatly disappointed in its structures and systems that seem so flawed, broken, and corrupt, broadly conflicted, and gravely afraid of tomorrow. 2007, Bishop Job. With so many hurting and frightened people, Bishop Job went on to say that a radical change must take place. He said there are two enormously encouraging truths for us to remember in the midst of all of this. One is that God is with us. 
God continues to woo us, seek us out, love us, speak to us, enable us, and lead us into the future, the second thing we must remember is that it has been done before. He said today we need a message that can be clearly understood by persons of every age, every educational and economic level, every condition and circumstance of life. And today these three simple rules provide that message. The rules from Wesley, the founder of Methodism, are simple, the bishop says. Do no harm. Do good. And stay in love with God. It is not what many of us have been doing, he said. So to adopt this way is a radical shift in our lifestyle. It is a radical departure from our regular way of living. So of course it will be difficult. The rules are simple, but the way is not easy. Only those with great courage will attempt it. And only those with great faith will be able to walk in this exciting and demanding way. Do no harm, do good, and stay in love with God. Having expanded the first two rules, we now look at this third rule. And as we look at this final rule, I want you to hold both the original wording from John Wesley and the revised Bishop Job version in your mind. In 1743, John Wesley said, It is expected of all who desire to continue in these societies that they should continue to evidence their desire of salvation. Thirdly, by attending upon the ordinances of God. Stay in love with God. Attend upon all the ordinances of God. You can see why Bishop Job might want to translate that. Now, when we talk about attending to ordinances or staying in love with God, there are, at least for me, a few language barriers that put images and thoughts into my head that make this final rule a little more complex and ultimately more difficult to carry out. On the one hand, when I hear, attend to the ordinances of God, I feel like I'm listening to a sermon from a deeply Southern Baptist pastor who is getting ready to condemn me to hell for all eternity. Because there is some small biblical fine print that I have misread or forgotten that now leads to some eternal punishment. And on the other hand, when I hear stay in love with God, I met with something that's maybe not quite descriptive enough. What does it mean to love God? Am I loving this idea of God? Am I loving the all too often depicted old man in a white robe with a long white beard? In some ways... This final rule invites us into that conversation, a discussion about who and what God is, and then what it means to love God, to attend to God's ordinances. And these are huge theological concepts, things that will not be fully defined this morning, but it is my hope to look at this through a theological lens to better understand this final instruction and to offer some clarification. So in looking at this final rule, I decided to take a synonymous approach, and I sought out alternate words that convey the same meaning. When I looked up the word ordinance, it is defined as an authoritative decree or direction. 
a law set forth by governmental authority, or a prescribed religious rite, practice, or ceremony. It is derived from the Latin ordinare, which means to put in order, and is also related to the word ordain and ordination, which means, uh, oh, we said that already. And it can be synonymous with words like laws, statutes, acts, rules, mandates, commands, sacraments, ceremonies, observances, or service. That's ordinance. And then in an effort to maintain Bishop Job's theological desire to craft a message that can be clearly understood, I went to Scripture in an effort to define or maybe redefine God. Because a long white beard just doesn't cut it for me. And when I searched the Scriptures, what do you think I found, church? God is... Love, God is, what? Good, love, good, all right, right? Yeah, God is love and light, faithful spirit, creator, gracious, righteous, full of compassion, just, savior, sovereign, a sun and shield, forgiving, a consuming fire. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Stay in love with God. Stay in love with light. Stay in love with grace. In love with spirit. Attend to the ordinances of God. Attend to the commands of God. The statutes of God. The rules of God. Attend to the rules of love. Follow the rules of love. Practice the rules of love. Practice love. Practice God's love. Celebrate God's love. Practice loving the one God. Attend to the sacraments of God. Attend to observing God. Serving God. Take your pick. They're all right. They're all correct. As with the first two rules, John Wesley offered some further clarification for this third one. He said, It is expected of all who desire to continue in these societies that they should continue to evidence the desire of salvation. Thirdly, by attending upon all the ordinances of God, such are the public worship of God. The ministry of the word, either read or expounded. The supper of the Lord. Family and private prayer. Searching the scriptures. Fasting or abstinence. He said, these are the general rules of our societies. All of which we are taught of God to observe, even in God's written word, which is the only rule and the sufficient rule, both of our faith and our practice. And all these we know God's spirit writes on truly awakened hearts. To attend to the ordinances of God and to stay in love with God is to develop, maintain, and further both a personal and public relationship with the Lord of all creation. It is the third and most important piece of a three-piece set that distinguishes us from any other group or organization at work in the world. 
Because as you know, there are countless charity, mercy, and justice organizations that work for the betterment of humankind, that do good and avoid harming others. But it is the church of Jesus Christ that is the only one that is led by, guided by, and intentionally seeks to draw people into a relationship with the living God. When we gather together to worship, to read scripture, to hear a sermon, to preach a sermon, to take communion, to pray, fast, or when we abstain from certain indulgences, we are reorienting and reviving ourselves for carrying out those first two rules while at the same time deepening and enriching our relationship with the one God who is love, light, faithful, spirit, creator, gracious, righteous, and so much more. And these ordinances, these rules, commands, sacraments, ceremonies, and observances, they provide for us a pattern of spiritual discipline that offers us structure and direction for growth in holiness. They foster in us the gifts of the Spirit in both our personal life and our broader community. They help to form us into the people God intends for us to be. Did you hear that? They help to form us into the people God intends for us to be. As children of God, redeemed by the grace of God through Christ Jesus, we are called to live a life that does not harm others, a life that benefits others, and a life of transformational love for both others and ourselves. And so this morning, as we now turn our focus to one of God's ordinances, because remember, Jesus said, do this. I invite you to think about what that means. As United Methodists, we believe that Jesus Christ, who is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, is truly present in Holy Communion. The divine presence is a living reality and can be experienced by participants. It is not simply a remembrance of the Last Supper and the crucifixion only. Through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, God meets us at this table. We believe that God, who has given the sacraments to the church, acts in and through Holy Communion. We believe that Christ is present through the community gathered in Jesus' name, through the word proclaimed and enacted, and through the elements of bread and wine that are shared. And we receive spiritual nourishment through Holy Communion. The Christian life is a journey, one that is challenging and arduous, a difficult and radical departure from our regular way of living, as the bishop said. And as people of great courage and great faith who are attempting to walk this exciting and demanding way, to continue living faithfully and growing in holiness we will require constant sustenance. John Wesley wrote that this is the food of our souls. This gives strength to perform our duty 
and leads us to perfection. So today we have the opportunity to encounter God in this way, to know God in this way, and to love God in this way. We have the opportunity to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit through a means of grace that enables us to perform our mission and ministry, to continue God's work in the world, the work of redemption, reconciliation, peace, and justice. So important is this meal, this ordinance, this encounter with the living God that John Wesley said it is the duty of every Christian to receive the Lord's Supper as often as they can. A sentiment that I believe is echoed by our new senior pastor, who has expressed an interest in offering this meal at one of our three Sunday morning worship services every week. Something to think about. So as we transition from one ordinance to another, I will close with a short reading from This Holy Mystery, which is the official interpretive statement of the United Methodist Church's understanding of Holy Communion. It says, When we eat and drink at the table, we become partakers of the divine nature in this life and for life eternal. We are anticipating the heavenly banquet celebrating God's victory over sin, evil, and death. In the midst of the personal and systemic brokenness in which we live, we yearn for everlasting fellowship with Christ and ultimate fulfillment of the divine plan. Nourished by sacramental grace, we strive to be formed into the image of Christ and to be made instruments for transformation in the world. Amen. Now, as we participate,